0: All right, I'm going to go in the intro now. All right, hit it. You're listening to season two, episode 17 of Hip Squared, American Fantastics Pop Culture Podcast, celebrating everything from the mainstream to the independent, weird, old, and local. Troy, how's it going?
1: We're getting to the end of the summer, starting to finally cool down a little bit, ready for that fall. Pumpkin spice latte.
0: Yeah. I'm ready to dive into that. Yep. And get I, some, like, where you can just oh. smell cinnamon permeating through your pores. Mm.
1: I heard that they're starting it earlier than ever before this year the pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks.
0: Yeah. I've been working at Kroger the last few weeks, and we have um, all of our fall stuff coming out. Like, there's apple cider vinegar chips. Oh. I, have, mm. I haven't tried them yet, but it sounds good. Mmm.
1: So, I'm not normally a fan of vinegar chips, but. Apple cider vinegar. Um, that does sound very
0: seasonal. Yeah. It'll be good, I think. I don't know. I like salt and vinegar chips, but, you know, the apple vinegar. Apple vinegar is also one of those things that's kind of um, touted as a cure-all, almost. Like, uh, well, there's people that if you take a shot of apple cider vinegar every day, it's supposed to be really good for you.
1: There are other people that if you take a shot of apple cider vinegar every day, you'll throw up because it's disgusting. It's like a <laughs> shot of vinegar. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> that sounds horrible. Maybe just, like, pickle your insides a little bit. yeah
1: yeah, my insides are fine as they are. So speaking of insides, uh, I watched a new documentary this weekend. Okay. It's called uh, American Factory. Uh, it's on Netflix, and, like, it's one of those... I think uh, I've watched enough Netflix now that Netflix knows more about me than I know about myself when it comes to uh, uh, TV show and movie tastes. So yeah.
0: Well, documentaries have kind of become... A dominant genre, at least in the age of streaming TV, it seems like. Like, there was that big hit on HBO, was it making of a serial killer or something. The one where the guy outed himself on a hot mic in the bathroom or something like that.
1: Right. But, I mean, like, most documentaries, like, they, they have this traditional and uh, well-known fact of being boring, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I think a lot of that comes from, like, if the documentary is about stuff that you know about, and since a lot of kids have just like been stuck listening to documentaries during school that they have no interest in at all. So when you're going out and looking for documentaries yourself, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're a lot more inclined to be like, have a positive mindset to it. that. And documentaries nowadays are, are a lot better than probably when we were kids because the, uh, just the quality of, uh, stuff that's coming out is better. So American factory. Mm-hmm. So it's a documentary. um, it kind of starts back in 2008 when uh, the big financial recession was happening mm-hmm. and a lot of plants were closing. And in particular, there was a plant in Dayton, Ohio. It was a GM plant that okay. um, shut down and they shuttered the doors and impacted, I think the count was like 10,000 families mm-hmm. um, because of just like job, like the job loss. The region that it was in, like that was... One or the city that was in, that was one of the big things that city was supporting was that factory. So it shut down in 2008. A lot of people lost their lost their jobs, went on really hard times. I know... I was talking to somebody the other day that mentioned, like, their dad had, like, had worked at that plant and lost his job.
0: Like, yeah, so it, it, it's... Impressive even that it stayed open that long because everything getting um, either... Outsourced your foreign competition, and I didn't realize. Well, I guess it's part of the Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. You think of auto plants as always being in Detroit, but there's a big Toyota plant in Louisville and a Ford plant. So
1: right, there's a few plants in Kentucky. So like, there's it's not that surprising that there were these car plants, but like when the recession hit, a lot of them in the U. S. shut down because people aren't. But when people don't buy cars, there's no point in making them when you can't sell them. So. It starts in 2008 and they pretty much show like the plant closing and then skip ahead seven years in uh, 2015, a Chinese company by the name, by the name of Fuya, Mm -hmm. um, bought the, um, the location and the buildings. So their intention was to open a American version of their glass production plant. So... In China, they have been making essentially windshields for um, all the big car companies, and they were going to start doing that in the U.S. now as well. Probably, since a lot of the um, cars are manufactured in the U.S. and it's been it was getting shipped over, so it's a way of avoiding tariffs and um, start off their business in the U.S. and like move more globally. So the story kind of. Is all about the interaction between the two groups of people. Because what you have is you have this Chinese company that's come in, and a lot of the people that are um, like managers and upper management are um, Chinese, and they're there to try and like get this plant on the same level as their Chinese counterpart. And then you have all these Americans who are here, who are essentially looking for good jobs, looking for jobs in this region that's been like kind of sucked dry. It's now that the manu- now that a lot of the manufacturing jobs have left, and now this huge new manufacturing companies come in. So yeah,
0: it's a lot of the same workers that came back from the right. first time the factory was open. Been-
1: so, so some of them are, um, and some of them are just like people that have been a like. It gives the impression that's a lot of the workers from, the, uh, from when the factory is closed or, like, family members that have worked in the factory. And they're coming back and they're looking for these, like, they're looking for decent paying jobs. Um, so it starts off in 2015 and the, there's immediately some, like, like, some good vibes. Like, you know, all these people that are just excited to have a job that are in. Uh, These Chinese people that are completely new to the American culture and learning about it, learning about, like, what it means to live here um, and, like, interacting with these people. So, like, that's a really cool part of this. But then it start like, the uh, contentions start to grind. And it starts off immediately when um, they have the senator, uh, a senator come and, like, kind of commemorate the opening of this huge plant that's going to employ thousands of people. And he mentions a union. Yeah. And, like, starting unions
0: and that's the other thing I was thinking of is that Chinese working conditions are a lot worse, usually, than anything in American factory, which is also kind of why I imagine things are so cheap because you can pay people.
1: Right. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you're getting kind of the me of the story. And it's a, a – it starts with the Chinese factory. Like they understand – you can tell they understand going in. We can't get, this, get these Americans to work the same way that we can get Chinese people to work because they go in like – it's three shifts, um, eight hour shifts. So standard standard American uh, policy. And when you kind of like see that in comparisons to a Chinese policy, it's completely different. Like one of the um, one of the scenes that I thought was the most interesting was there's a scene where um, essentially the Americans are having a hard time meeting quotas and getting the quality out that they need to. So they send a lot of their, like middle management American, um, people over to China to see their process and meet with their company. And at that point you get to see like how these factories are run. And it's like the whole time I was watching it, you see these people that are, um, they're like machines. They can knock out the same process that American is doing in half the time. They're, um, systematic, they are quick and they're efficient and they're accurate and they do the same thing every time. And the whole time I'm watching that, I'm going, you cannot get an American to do that. <laughs> and yeah. they they don't stop like between their breaks, they're just they're moving like constantly. They're not stopping to go talk to other people, they're not um, getting one thing done, waiting to waiting for a second for the next thing to come in. They're just immediately it's always work. and that's just something that doesn't happen in American factories. And I mean, You believe who you will I think that's a good thing that like we um, don't have these expectations of people but at the same time you're not going to get the same speed of workout so this whole interaction like in this culture clash it was just really interesting to watch especially when like there's one uh, American that had gone over and like was going to try and bring back some of these ideas and he's like okay I'm just going to start with trying to have my people line up um, during the morning instead of just like all sitting around in a huddle. And he was barely able to do that. Yeah. So it was, uh, well,
0: I know part of what's different about China is it's, or in Asia and in, in general is that it's so much more community based than individualistic. So I imagine having groups of people work in like a finely tuned, um, machine is a lot simpler than Americans who kind of think about their own individual needs first and how, That's going to like how what's going on is going to impact them as opposed to the other way around.
1: Right. And one of the other things you see is that this company has has essentially built up in a um, what am I thinking of a corporate city. So like the people that work there also live in apartments that are um, like right next to the factory or they live in dorms that are supplied by or that are provided by the factory. Their whole families live there um the kids as well so you so like there's this one festival where it's essentially like the company party and like there are kids there there are kids performing in the shows um all like the people's like wives and husbands are performing in the shows so and it's it's this whole group of people that you would say like are a community but are essentially just also owned by this company and under this company's bell. And that's not something that you would see in America because people are more individualistic here. People in America, um, have their lives and then also work. And then the impression that you get in this, um, in this documentary is that it's kind of the reverse is that you have your job and that's what you do. And also you live your life outside of that. Um, so the, the cultures between them are very interesting to watch. Um, and they do a very good job of not pushing or saying one is better than the other. Um, and, uh, what was I going to say? I would be very interested to see this or to watch this with somebody like from that culture or with that attitude. Cause I know I, I was watching with uh, my wife and like, we were having this conversation of like, you would never see Americans like what they're doing, you could never get Americans to do, or the expectations that they're looking for just can't happen. And I would love to see, like have this conversation with somebody from that culture. That's like, well, why not? What, what is so different? Why can't you do this? Mm -hmm. And, um, like that, that conversation that, um, between two people about like why these cultures are clashing. Cause there's, there, there are moments in it where, um, there was one guy that there was an American that was in charge of a, um, or that was running a line and he had a Chinese engineer that was kind of help that was helping him supervising it, watching for quality. And they got along really well and you could see that interaction and like the gap could clearly be bridged and like these people could work together, but just not seeing like having that conversation, like that'd be be really cool to see. Yeah.
0: It's, did they speak to the Chinese people through interpreters or do you <laughs> get that perspective too?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything, like anytime the Chinese people say something, it's go, it goes through an interpreter or you get the uh, translation. So you're not really out, uh, out in the wind.
0: Do the Chinese people seem to learn from the Americans too anything? Uh,
1: I'd like to say yes, but not really. And it's... Again, we're taking it from like one person. Like from one, we're taking it from one perspective, trying to get both. But it seemed like the Chinese were very um, hard in their ways. This is the way it has to be done. Just do it this way. And yeah. the American, they were trying to get the Americans to be more flexible, rather than the other way around. Um, I'd recommend checking it out, especially if you have any kind of family that's in, um, or any family or friends that are in manufacturing, and see see what you can like talk about with them. I didn't really cover a lot about the unions, which is a big part of the show. Um, I'll kind of let you take a look at that and see what you think about it. But, um, it's a really interesting movie. It's a really interesting documentary and I think they play well on both sides. And the last thing I'll mention is that it was, um, funded by, or it was at least brought to, uh, Netflix by higher ground productions, which is a, uh, Obama supported company. So essentially, the uh, at the end of the movie, there's a ten minute clip where the directors are uh, speaking to the Obamas about, you know, their thoughts about like these kind of documentaries that they're starting to fund.
0: Um, yeah, it seems like part of that too would be the impact of the bailouts on the auto industry. I guess because I know a lot of American, even more American factories would have closed if that auto bail hadn't occurred. But I guess this is just one of the ones that still didn't meet the economic cut, but it's interesting too, to see how that like that cultural shift happens when things go from being American owned to foreign owned. Mm-hmm. And it seems to like a lot of people are very wary right now of, um, Chinese economic expansion mm-hmm. into in other markets. Um, there's, the Mysterious Universe podcast that I talked about a few episodes ago, they're in Australia, and they're always really freaked out about this telecommunications company called Huawei. Mm. Because if you buy parts manufactured in China for your communications equipment, the fear is that they can use that equipment to spy on you. So I think part of it seems to be, like, economic anxiety. And then I imagine, too, part of it is just, like, cultural and racial anxiety of fearing the other but it seems like in this at least it's more based on actual um like cultural differences
1: right this one's much more like personal in terms of like people interacting with people and if you those people saying they're afraid of Huawei you should be afraid of Huawei that's the right call like the the things that have come out that um we've learned they're doing, yeah. You should be afraid of them. Okay. So <laughs> silly things like, oh, the phone that you have in the U.S. is um, tracing data back to the Chinese, these Chinese government locations. So, okay. yeah, yeah.
0: That's <laughs> probably the same reason somebody in Singapore is stealing my Netflix password. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, um, speaking of large corporations, um, the novel that I'm going to speak about is called Oil by oil. Upton Sinclair. You have to say oil. Because there's an exclamation point in it. Oh, okay. And that's one of the few titles I've ever seen that gets an exclamation point.
1: There are other ones out there, probably. I'm sure there are. It's just, it's just, just, I can't think of one right now, but I'm sure there are.
0: (laughs) Well, it's just such a strange stylistic choice, but um, I think it's maybe it's supposed to evoke. Like when you discover the oil.
1: I was going to say excitement. I mean, that's yeah. what I would be shouting if I found out there was a big <laughs> pile of oil underneath my house.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, it, it, it could be appropriate in a few circumstances. But um, what oil is about is <laughs> a couple of generations in this um, oil baron's family. Mm-hmm. So it's also the... Movie or the book that "There Will Be Blood" is based on. Oh, okay. With Daniel Day Lewis, and um, that's a movie Kelly and I quote all the time. We I think we've only seen it once, but there's this great scene where Daniel Day Lewis's character is explaining why he doesn't have to buy the oil from the um, like spiritual evangelist character, and it's because he bought up all the land um, outside of him, and he can stick his like oil mm. pipelines underneath the other person's <laughs> property. And the way, like the analogy he gives is, um, I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. <laughs> and like like a straw <laughs> going down. And it's a, that's the line that we quote to each other all the time.
1: Okay. When you're drinking each other's milkshakes. Yeah, exactly. Or okay. just to be
0: silly with each other, but um, I'm not going to read into that too much. <laughs> God, I've <laughs> been used in that situation. Um, but what it, so the, if you've ever seen There Will Be Blood, I think the novel is very different from the movie. Okay. And the biggest difference is the focus because the novel, the movie is all focused on Daniel day Lewis's character and he's kind of this corrupt oil baron who works his way up from being a like a prospector, like somebody that just goes out and looks for oil mm-hmm. in the wild. And um, in the book, it's all told from the son of the oil baron's perspective, and his name is Bunny. Okay. That's his nickname through the whole novel. Um, they don't really go into a lot of detail about Bunny's mother, but she's not in the story really at all.
1: So I'll stop you real quick because I haven't seen There Will Be Blood. Is it, isn't it? it more of like an
0: action movie? No. It's, okay. It's kind of like historical um, fiction yeah I mean it's it's kind of like trying to evoke this time in American history where there was this new business booming and then there are all these corrupt people who became carry cutthroat in mm. terms of how the business was run. Okay. and it's kind of like the whole idea is that it's it's money over any price, whether that's blood or you know anything that would get in the way of that. So okay. So that's the overarching theme and that theme is definitely in oil. I'm sorry. Oil. Oil. But it's 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 expressed in a very different way because it's told from the son's perspective. And so and his father, um, his name is J. R. is not the kind of hard corrupted, um, hard hearted character that Daniel Day Lewis is in the movie because in the movie he's just kind of irredeemable. Mm-hmm. And um, just completely ruthless, whereas in the book, he's kind of like somebody who's seen as new rich, and he does not have the high society kind of manners of somebody with a lot of money. He's more like salt of the earth that became wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the very beginning, there's this long sequence in the beginning where Bunny and his father are driving up to where there's this field that at least they want to be looking for. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so much beauty in how Upton Sinclair describes this trip because it's not just them going through these rolling hills in Northern Cali- or in California um, to where this where they think this oil field is going to be, but it's also from the boy's perspective, Bunny's perspective, watching his father drive through all these roads. And um, I don't know, it just gives you the sense of awe. And so I'm going to read a quote here from that early part of the story. Mm -hmm. So the laws of good driving forbade you to go off the magic ribbon except in extreme emergencies. You were ethically entitled to several inches of margin at the right-hand edge, and the man approaching you was entitled to an equal number of inches, which left a remainder of inches between the two projectiles as they shot by. It sounds risky as one tells it, but the heavens are run on the basis of similar calculations. And while collisions do happen, they leave time enough in between for universes to be formed and successful careers conducted by men of affairs. And so it's a lot of these very simple observations that are just described in such a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And the prose of the book throughout is just incredible because I knew of Upton Sinclair from The Jungle, which is a book written about the meatpacking industry
1: okay i was gonna say i i thought i'd recognize the name go ahead
0: and that one was very impactful too because it was about the meatpacking industry in chicago at the turn of the 20th century and it helped um usher in the i think it was called the clean food and drug act which basically Mm -hmm. like the fda became a part well, i was of gonna it.
1: say yeah what birthed the, the fda yeah. and all the regulations that are around like meat processing yeah. food processing and
0: so so he already had this reputation as kind of like this political firebrand and he went from subject to subject and he always was really forceful um from his perspective and a lot of it was kind of Using storytelling and, and fiction to expose the brutality of these certain um, kinds of industries.
1: So does he do that in this? Does he like really evoke like the evil that was in the oil industry well, and the cutthroatness that was yeah, there?
0: Yeah, and part of it too is playing on the greed of just regular people too. Because the first scene, the first big scene after Bunny and his father get to these to where there's gonna be this meeting where people are describing how they're gonna break up. Mm-hmm. and sell their land mm-hmm. to be developed. And my daughter's freaking out of stairs. I no. <laughs> It's okay. Poor Kelly. Yeah. Guys had a long day. I so, get that. So is Kelly. Um, but
1: so, but. so do we want to take a pause? No, it's okay. We're All just right. going to
0: push through it. I guess Kelly asked me for help. Um, Kelly retroactively apologized. <laughs> 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 um, but. What this book does is it just kind of rips the veil off of all these um, kinds of human vices that make this situation even um, more intense and and worse for people. And it kind of shows how greed, especially, uh, clouds people's judgment and gets in the way because... In the first part, there's all these common people that are talking about how they're going to sell their land to the oil companies and how sure. they're going to sell these leases. Sure. But then they all kind of, um, based on how much land they have and where their plots are, they sort of keep scheming against each other and trying to Trying to get that, that much more. Yeah, and they're trying to cheat each other like or figure out who is going to form kind of like these little alliances. Hmm. And so that is played up for a bit of comedic effect in the beginning but it's just kind of showing how these, um, like all this wealth plays on the worst parts of, uh, of who people are. Sure.
1: I mean, like, what if, why do people do anything except for money and getting ahead in the world? So, I exactly. mean, if, if that's what the purpose of this book is to really pull that forward and show that, like, that truth of this is why, like, this is what greed can cause and this is what causes greed.
0: Exactly. And, uh, and I think a lot of it, too, is speaking about how exploitative these industries are. Um, so in the very first part of the book, while there's this insane meeting taking place where the whole neighborhood is fighting with each other, there's this boy named Paul Watkins. Who's, so in this part of the story, Bunny's probably about 12, and then mm-hmm. Paul's you know about 14 or 15 years old. And he has been um, kind of on his own, and he's come back home, but he doesn't really want to know pe- want people to know he's there yet, so Bunny steals him a pie from inside this little meeting, like from the kitchen, and brings it to Paul. Okay. And then Paul is so um, idealistic in terms of, like he keeps saying that he wants to pay money to uh, back for the pie to Bunny once he has it, and he won't accept any money from Bunny, who's got a lot of money because his dad is rich. Sure. And, um, and so that sort of puts in bunny's mind this idealistic vision of paul mm-hmm. and then as the story goes on um bunny helps his dad discover this oil field while they're quail hunting like he just finds like this puddling ooze mm-hmm. in the field and that that kind of becomes bunny's oil field or at least the one that oh, okay. that bunny's dad names after him sure and then throughout the course of the story, while Bunny ages and he goes to high school and he goes to college and there's all these labor struggles going on mm-hmm. in the oil field and he sees how they're resolved and how, um, like he gives us a very sympathetic perspective for the workers and what they're going through and sure. like why they're striking and all this. Sure. And then world war one hits. And in the course of that, uh, the Rus- Russian revolution happens, which is all about <laughs> overthrowing the Tsar and, Starting communism, and then Paul, after World War One, is stationed as part of um, the people, kind of keeping an eye on Eastern Europe and making sure the Bolsheviks, as they call them, mm-hmm. uh, don't expand in other countries. And so, from that, in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, um, and Paul kind of becomes Paul becomes completely disillusioned um, and starts to become a communist himself. Hmm. And so, Bunny. It, in college too, um, starts to become a socialist cause he's got this professors that he's influenced by and it starts this tension oh, between it's always the professors and universities. Yeah, exactly. It starts this tension between him and his father's business colleagues because Bunny keeps trying to use all of his wealth and money to, um, put forward to these socialist causes. But then all these oil barons are, are opposing a lot of the labor struggles that, these socialists are fighting for in the first place
1: of course that's how they got all their money was by opposing labor struggles the cheaper that you can pay your workers the more money you get back for yourself exactly. it's, just, it's just common math
0: yeah it's a kind of terrifying equation <laughs> when you think about it but um so then it, it does follow bunny's life uh, a little bit through all of that so for for part of it he kind of has this very shallow affair with this woman named v tracy mm-hmm. and she represents hollywood and and celebrity and um She's a she's a movie star, and the story takes place kind of on the outskirts of L.A., like in the is like the country back then is where they find this oil. But then they refer to Los Angeles as Angel City, which is mm. just this very, you know, it's Los Angeles. They just don't call it Los Angeles, <laughs> sure. so I guess it's a slightly fictional version of it. Sure. Um, but then after that, he. Falls in well, he doesn't fall in love. He, it's really weird how this happens. This is the one, my one critique <laughs> with this book is, it's all told from Bunny's perspective, and he writes Bunny really well. Mm-hmm. But the women are all either, kind of like, awful women like V, like kind of vain.
1: Sure, one dimensional.
0: Yeah, or they're like these pining like, like very loyal like sisters, or Bunny ends up with this very, I thought is like kind of this plain she's important to the socialist movement in the book. Her name is Rachel. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of Jews in the movement and um, she's one of them. And at the, toward the very end of the novel, uh, this is kind of when Bunny has been um, like, this is after his father dies and he and his sister have this really awful fight over the estate after, um, after her father's his father's death and they're fighting with his business partner over the inheritance and everything. Mm-hmm. And so once all that is settled, Bunny decides with that, he's going to start a socialist college, which is interesting because part of it, like there's all these protests going on. And he said part of being able to graduate with you, you had to be arrested for three, three times. No. <laughs> it's just all these. And so basically what it's going to be is this, instead of going to college, you kind of get indoctrinated in the socialist movement and then you become like a, like a foot soldier and you really were like cuz that's one of the things this this book does is lays bears, lays bare the the struggle that the labor movement was because you know there's cops beating up protesters and okay. strikers there's um there's this really horrifying scene toward the end of the book where Paul and Rachel because well so to fit into the bourgeois society Paul and Rachel get married because they're going to be like running this camp together and they want to be able to like share living sure. space and not be like raising suspicions. Mm-hmm. So that's their solution is to get married. And then it's revealed that Rachel loves, uh, has loved Bunny throughout this whole book, <laughs> which that's the part I kind of was like critiquing. is like, really? Like you're just going <laughs> to, and uh, it seems like a very. Sure,
1: you can throw those words in at the end. It, it seems mean... <laughs> like a
0: big shortcut. Like I, I guess I just would have, whether there had it been a marriage convenience because it comes on as he's trying to like inside all this passion at the end, but i feel like it wasn't earned. Hmm. But anyway, that's my one dig at the book. The rest of it is really good. And like, that's really the biggest critique I have of it. Um,
1: that is like a wide scoping book. I mean, it like that is. covers a ton of different areas and issues. And it. I'm, I'm wondering how well it covers any of them like, well, really deeply. It or does. Well.
0: The way it does it really well is it all tells it through the spectrum of bunny's life. Hmm. So it's bunny's story of being a young, like, you know, on the cusp of adolescence all the way through early adulthood. Mm-hmm. And so all of these, like the labor struggles and the socialist movement and how the oil fields are operated. Cause it goes into that too. Like just the practicalities of digging for, um, mm-hmm. you know, these, these holes. And then like also like pulling people out with hooks, like Tr- you're like basically trying to take them out like those little, um, doll machines at the oh like my gosh restaurant. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, the really the really intense part of the end of the book. This is like really horrifying. So trigger warning uh, mm-hmm. for people with like this is like the most violent part of the book. But Rachel and Paul and Bunny pull up to this labor meeting going on, and it's kind of like in the in New York in. Um, I kind of got the impression it's sort of like in a gym, like in a public space. Okay, um, Sure. And these all these guys pull up with baseball bats and pipes, and then they go into the meeting place and they just start wrecking everything and beating people up, and then um, Bunny and Rachel go in, and in the aftermath, and there's all these people like just laying around and bleeding and dying, and um, mm-hmm. the worst part is, is that they they throw th- these kids into coffee urns that are, like, boiling hot water. Oh, my God. And there's this scene where they're describing pulling off the the pants of one of the kids and, like, skin coming off as oh. they're pulling it off. And it's, like, it's just insane because they... I guess part of it is that those horrible atrocities did happen, but, like, that's just, like, the last... It's like Elton Sinclair is just punching you in the face with that imagery, and it's really... <sighs> intense to read it but it also kind of hits home that like just the brutality of what was involved in that struggle so it has a very tragic ending because this man that bunny looks up to throughout the whole book dies um i haven't really talked about this too much but his brother became like this early evangelist and like raising all this money through gotcha uh through the church and then he uh he basically tells paul on his deathbed that like, this all happened to him because he forsake God and everything. And then he lies and says Paul made this deathbed confession and, like, became a Christian at the very end. But it's just very, like, it, it does kind of become a little cynical, but it also becomes really, like, um, I don't know. I think it kind of has a an appropriate ending because it's such a a bitter, bitter ending, but it's also, like, this this whole hard struggle throughout the whole book. And I kind of liked it, too, because... Bunny has a very privileged life Mm -hmm. and he um, he's part of this movement, but he doesn't really ever know the true struggle Mm -hmm. because he's so insulated from it, from his dad's wealth that at the end he, I don't know, I think he really experiences like with the loss of his friend and his idol, um, like the true loss that can come from putting everything on the line like that anyway <laughs> there you go so if you earn for a really dark mm-hmm. i was gonna but say riveting yeah, read dark um, sounds like
1: it but yeah
0: well and it, i think it too it like it it touches on a lot of those same labor issues that you were talking about with american factory just in in another era era exactly right uh well, we did want to thank you all so much for listening to hip skirt Uh, If you'd like to keep up with what we're doing, follow American Fantastic on Facebook. Uh, That's where we'll post notifications about all the new episodes that come up. You can also follow us on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Uh, You can rate and review us there as well. That really helps the show. It helps people find it. Mm -hmm. And um, if you'd like to listen to any of their other audio content, you can listen to that on American Fantastic as well. Uh, All the episodes of the American Fantastic Radio Hour with Art FM are up there. Uh, We're about to have a new episode of 50 Talk 2 posted with Krishna and Marty Edlin, uh, the father and son duo from the uh, Louisville heavy metal band Cyclops Shaman. Sweet. Yeah, (laughs) so that'll be up there too. Um, Our episode tonight was produced by Mayplex Monk. And if you want to find out uh, more about what Mayplex is doing, you can go to MayplexMonk.com or follow him on Facebook as well. Uh, if you want to support the show directly a really good way to do that is to find american fantastic on patreon you can become a member there for as little as a dollar a month and anything helps um if you follow the show if you listen in please leave a comment on facebook leave a comment for us on google Podcasts or itunes let us know we're listening Uh, we really want to hear from you guys and um also last but not least we wanted to thank danosongs.com for our intro and outro music and if anybody else would like any royalty music free music for their project go to danosongs.com Troy is there anything I forgot? I think you got it all (laughs) All right. well thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time toodles toodles